I want the girl. You know, I thought you were stupid, friend. But I underestimated you. You were a total freaking retard. <laughs> and welcome back to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time washed away. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time silent wasteland drifter, Andrew Phillips. Okay, and today we're talking about Kevin Costner battling with his own lack of charisma in Waterworld. But does Kevin Reynolds' apocalyptic epic deserve a life raft, or should this belly flop of a film remain lost at sea? Find out after the trailer. The future. The polar ice caps have melted, and the Earth lies beneath a watery grave. Those who survived have adapted to a new world. What did you see out there in the 15 lunars? Such as? An end? An end to all this water? You're asking the wrong person. Pure dirt. So what's the word? We trading or not? And the human dream is the search for a mystical place called dry land. It doesn't exist! How can you be sure? Because I sailed farther than most have dreamed. I've never seen it. This place... This whole way of living, it's ending. Straight line leading directly. Directly to dry land. Dry land is not just our destination, but it is our destiny! Universal Pictures presents a world unlike any you have ever seen. Costner, Dennis Hopper, Gene Triplehorn. Waterworld. They say you should never make a film on water or with kids. So Kevin Costner and Kevin Reynolds decided to make one with both. Costner stars as Mad Max Gilman, a piss-drinking enthusiast trying to survive in a world without land. But when he encounters a young girl who may hold the key to dryland, he finds himself on the run from a gang of apocalyptic pirates known better as Smokers. Will Costner make it through the violent ordeal and survive the making of Waterworld? I feel like that question should be followed by like a sad trombone sound, like wah, wah. <laughs> Okay, so I actually nominated Waterworld for this week's episode and I want to just provide a few reasons as to why. So not only was Fallout 4 released recently, but this year also saw the release of Mad Max Fury Road, which was greeted with a great reception and much critical acclaim. 
Like most, I loved it, but since then I've been thinking about the other post-apocalyptic epics and a few that didn't quite reach the mark. No. And Waterworld was one of the first films I thought of, and we've been holding off reviewing it for a, quite a while now. Yeah, yeah. So I've known it since I was a kid. I remember I didn't go to the cinema to see it, but I, I had a pirated VHS copy of somebody had filmed it on the cinema. Oh, really? You can see the people getting up and leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'd seen it then, and I got a copy when it came out officially and watched it then. But I haven't seen it for a few years, so this is almost like meeting an old friend for me. Yeah. Um, How was it for you? I hadn't seen this until quite recently. I'd heard a lot of stories about it from my dad, because I remember him and my Uncle Chris went to see it, and they kept going on about Dennis Hopper's eye afterwards. That's all they could talk about was Dennis Hopper's eye. And uh, by all accounts, they had a good time watching it. So for me, I didn't know about all the problems with Waterworld for quite a long time. I didn't even realise that it was seen to be a, a box office bomb. So you know it as Waterworld the hit, not Waterworld the flop. Yeah, I just knew it as Waterworld. Yeah. Like, I know it wasn't like massive, but I knew it wasn't like a flop either. Or people didn't like it or had all those production problems. Because when you're a kid, you're not really that much aware of production problems. No, Because, no. you know, they're talking 1995 now, we're about eight years old. Yeah, it's strange. It did get a reputation for being the most notorious Hollywood flop at the time. Yeah. And I guess one thing we're going to get into as this episode goes on is whether or not that is validated. Yeah. Kevin's Gate. Kevin's Gate, yeah. Fishtar. <laughs> Fishtar. I love that <laughs> That's one. my favourite one. <laughs> So I think it's best now for us to just go straight into the making of the film because like many of the films we cover on Best Forgotten Movies, Waterworld is yet another one of those films that has a turbulent production history. Yeah. And to start, we really need to go back to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yes. Because Waterworld is not the first time that Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner have worked together. This was actually their fourth collaboration because they'd worked on Fandango, Yes, which is Kevin Reynolds' first film. And, yeah, and they worked on Robin Hood. Yeah, because they were known as being, like, best friends at the time as well, like production partners. Well, that's the thing, because the other thing I read this morning was that the production on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, by the end, was very troubled as well. And Kevin Reynolds' editor was locked out of the editing room by the end of Prince of Thieves. And the cut that we've got of Prince of Thieves is not the one that Kevin Reynolds wanted. So even at this point, I'm not quite sure why he would have gone into a production this big with this guy again, because some of the production problems they had with Prince of Thieves were kind of a mild version of what we had on this film. Yeah. And even on a, on a normal front, that would probably be enough to put you off working with somebody again. Yeah, I do wonder if the editing problems on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves actually account for many of the geographical errors <laughs> there are in the film. Well, that's the thing. We get some of the same problems happening again with this film yeah. uh, that we do with Robin Hood, uh, especially in the tonal department. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah. So it was Costner's idea, really, to do Waterworld. This was his baby, almost. Yeah. And Reynolds was somebody who he brought on board. Mm. Because Reynolds was not the first choice that the studio had to direct Waterworld. It was actually Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. And I actually want to see that film. Yeah, I think he would have held things together much better. Yeah. I think he's one of these directors that's very good at working under pressure and with all the special effects going on and everything like that. I think he would respond well to the material. But yeah, it's obviously that thing where the star has the power in the situation and he wants his friend. And I don't think their friendship was destined to last this film, considering how strained it was anyway at that point. Waterworld just marked 
like a problem too far for them, really. Yeah, in a weird way, because we were just talking about Ishtar before, it's kind of a similar situation where Kevin Costner is the Warren Beatty of this film, and he's got his friend in to direct the film, and it seems like a very similar situation. Well, you'd be happy to learn that they've actually patched things up and are working together again. Well, they, they worked on that that miniseries, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, the Hatfields and the McCoys, yeah. which was a History Channel miniseries that actually did quite well. Yeah, it only took about 18 years yeah. to, <laughs> for them to patch things up, but yeah. Reynolds was actually quoted as saying after the film had come out that Kevin Costner should only star in movies he directs. That way he can work with his favourite actor and favourite director. <laughs> After seeing The Postman, you can only see that that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Kevin Costner was on a run yeah. before he did Waterworld. I mean, even Waterworld could be considered as being part of that run when we look at the box office yeah, figures it was, later. It was, it was the double hitter of this and then The Postman that yeah. really killed his career for quite a long time. Which is strange. Why would he choose such a similar film to do next as well, The yeah. Postman? It's, it seems like an odd choice. After Waterworld comes out and gets a savage reception from the critics, you would expect that he would go off to do something completely different. I think it's more the case that with The Postman, he's kind of mixing two things in one. The Postman's more like a, a Western, yeah. and that's more going back to his Dancer with Wolves thing. So mm. I'm thinking that he's maybe going back to his comfort zone. Yeah. As soon as that film came out, he was such a huge star, and then almost disappeared overnight. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. As a kid, I really liked Kevin Costner as an actor, because The Untouchables was one of my favourite films, and it still remains one yeah. of my very favourite films. And I just remember that he disappeared from the limelight. He disappeared from films. And he ended up in films like 13 Days, which is fantastic, but vastly overlooked. Mm. And even Open Range, which was supposed to be his return to the Western genre, nobody saw it. And it's a fantastic film. Just nobody wanted to see Kevin Costner anymore. Yeah. It's just a shame, really. We're only starting to get him back in supporting roles now. Yeah. In films that are succeeding in terms of box office. Yeah, and even then, he's it's still a bit of a rocky ride back up to the top, really. Yeah, because... <laughs> Not many people are fond of his portrayal of Park Kent in yeah. Man of Steel, but I think that's more to do with the writing than to do with the casting. Yeah, and he, then he keeps getting cast in supporting roles, but in very bland films yeah. like Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit. Yeah. Because with some of this stuff, it could have been all springboard stuff because some of it's so anonymous that it's kind of all been forgotten already. Yeah. But going back to Waterworld, this was a real personal project for Costner because he invested $22 million of his own money mm -hmm. in the film. Was that towards the end? I think it was, yes. Probably. It probably was. <laughs> That's probably about a couple of weeks' work. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes to show just how invested he is in the film itself. No matter where in the production that money came, he was really banking on this being a big hit. Yeah, and he spent 157 days on set, six days a week. Yeah. And we'll go into this a little bit later. He was dedicated, but there were certain things that he did that created a lot of disharmony in the, in the production. Yeah. Okay, so enough about Costner for a moment. Let's talk about where Waterworld actually came from. What was it about the film that really sparked an interest in him? And it's quite strange because the original writer and the original version of Waterworld, as wrote in 1985, is actually remarkably different from the version we see, yeah. both in tone, even in genre. It's more of a kind of children's adventure movie. Yeah, it kind of reminded me more of SpongeBob SquarePants than anything else. <laughs> I actually have a write-up of it that I've taken from IMDb. Yeah. Just to give you an idea of what this film was about. So the original screenplay by Peter Rader was pitched as a children's adventure film. In Rader's screenplay, the Mariner character was a human and the chief defender of the Atoll, whose embarrassing secret was that he enjoyed painting pictures of seahorses. Helen had two of her own children, along with the adopted Enola, 
and the deacon was a campy, silly villain who dressed up like King Trident, sat atop a throne on the Exxon Valdez, and punished his subordinates by slapping them around the face with wet fish. Subsequent rewrites by David Twole. A lot of rewrites. And Josh Whedon turned the original script into a much more serious action adventure mm. film. This is a film that had a lot of drafts. Yeah. This I mean, had uh, 36 drafts and went through six writers. And that original version, it sounds like something Monty Python would write. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Especially the fish slapping. Yeah. It's quite strange how it came to be what it is. Yeah. But yeah, I think David Twohey came on board and actually tailored it more towards the kind of Mad Max 2 type yeah. film that we mm. see it as now. Yeah, so the problems just didn't extend to Kevin Costner and it, there were a lot of problems with Kevin Reynolds, I think, with also just keeping production together and just the all general pressures. Uh, and I think they just built up to such an extent that he actually left two weeks before they were meant to finish. Yeah. So I think Kevin Costner stepped in himself just to direct the end of the film. I think Reynolds left completely. I don't think he's even in charge of the editing no, afterwards. No, not whatsoever. Was just, he just relinquished everything. There's not really much written about why... It simply says, everywhere I look, it simply says there was a disagreement Yeah, and Kevin Reynolds walked. Although it's a little bit hazy as to whether he walked... Or was fired. Or was pushed, yeah. yeah. But we'll probably never know that. And rightly so. They've patched it up now. Yeah, You don't really want to be bringing that back up, so no. we're never going to find out. No. And in a good way, this film didn't entirely kill Kevin Reynolds' career as a director. He did go on to make some other films after this. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with this film. I don't think it really killed anyone's careers. No, like I said, even Kevin Costner, it didn't really kill his career. It took another film to do that. Yeah. I think everyone walked away fairly unscathed in a way. I think the, the main thing about the film is because it ended up costing so much. Well, films that are based at sea are always going to cost more. Yeah. Because it always costs more to film at sea, especially when you add that extra element of the weather. And you really can't predict for that. That's going to end up costing you money. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of things that I read about in the production of this film that baffled me. Even when you talk about the atoll being docked on shore, the fact that when they built the set, they built it with no toilets. So when anybody wanted to go to the toilet, they had to literally go on a boat and yeah. go ashore. And obviously that was even more problematic when they uh, were filming out at sea. So just that one simple thing would have added a lot of money because you'd have wasted so many days because people need to go to the toilet. You're wasting fuel, yeah. you're wasting time. Yeah. It just seemed like one of those simple logistical things that would have been solved if they just put a couple of portalies behind some of the set or on some of the boats, because apparently there weren't even toilets on the boats. There's quite a few things, I think, where they've just not thought about what they needed to do when they were at sea. Yeah. I think it's because there's not enough films that are made at sea that you only really experience these issues when you're actually making it. Yeah. You can't even compare it to even something like Jaws, because Jaws, relatively, was quite a small production compared to this. It was. In terms of what they were dealing with. Jaws went 100% over budget. Yeah. Waterworld's got so many more moving parts. Yes. And there's so many different sets, and there's so much different types of action going on. Uh, you've got stuff going on above sea, you've got stuff going on under sea. That It keeps on adding up and adding up. And you would think that they would make it easier for themselves by just making such kind of, like say, logistically the right decisions. And it seems that they've really hobbled themselves in some regards. Yeah. That was literally one of the funniest things I read. I've got this image of them just giving up and just shitting just hold, in the sea. Maybe that's why everyone is a bit too, a bit too po-faced yeah. in this film, apart from Dennis Harper. It's, it sounds so stupid, but like... Even if they didn't have toilets, they could have come up with some more inventive ways of dealing with that. I mean, Kevin Costner had the right idea at the beginning of the film with pissing into a cup. <laughs> 
I was about to say, I think that's the problem is they didn't want anybody pissing uh, Kevin Costner because there's every chance that he might drink it. Yeah. So, <laughs> But he's got his little machine that yeah. seems to work for no reason. I don't think it works. No. I reckon exactly what comes out is piss. Maybe it's just like he pours it in and then fermented piss comes out. So it kind of tastes <laughs> all right because it's been in there for like two days under the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it tastes like Dutch lager. I don't know. Oh, I bet it does. Yeah. <laughs> and two fingers of foam. Yeah. And another thing that came out of this Kevin Reynolds, Kevin Costner split was that they still had this third act of the film that didn't quite work. Yeah. So they brought on another writer in Josh Whedon, Mm -hmm. who was only hired to do one week's worth of rewrites. And he actually ended up hanging about for seven weeks. Seven weeks of hell. Just rewriting this script on set. And he says that he didn't really get to really incorporate any of his own ideas. It was just him channeling Kevin Costner. Yeah. Because I've got an actual quote from Josh Whedon here about writing the scripts. He says, Waterworld was a good idea and the script was the classic. They have a good idea. Then they write a generic script and don't really care about the idea. And Whedon wanted to incorporate more ideas that utilize Costner's character's mutant ability to swim at speed underwater and Mm. breathe underwater and instead it was all based on either a boat or based on land or anything like that they completely undercut him every time so he ended up just incorporating Costner's ideas to just base the final act on a boat or on land or something like that yeah so I get where he's coming from it doesn't really incorporate any of the kind of elements of him being a fish man no I mean there's only really one sequence that demonstrates him being a fish man yeah which is the underwater sequence and even that's not particularly dynamic. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that you could probably do nowadays with that that would have been much more interesting. It's so underused that you could have even just got rid of it and you wouldn't have noticed that much. Because yeah. they make a little bit of a thing at the beginning, but that's about it. Yeah, so Josh Whedon really didn't appreciate his time on Waterworld. No. It really was hell for him. Well, if you're just being hired just to write what somebody else wants, then it's just going to be very dull, especially if you're there for seven weeks. Josh Whedon was the for-hire kind of script doctor at the time. Yeah. I'm thinking of some of the films that he was brought on board. You've got Toy Story. Mm-hmm. Um, Speed as well, another one. He yeah. really punched up Speed, and yet he's not got a credit on that film either. Yeah. And he pretty much saved that script. <laughs> That's why a lot of the dialogue is so punchy and lands so well. Yeah, he didn't save Alien Resurrection, though, did he? But... No. <laughs> No, <laughs> he places the blame elsewhere, but reading his script, it does have a lot of issues. Even so, I think that's always the case. So sometimes you get writers that are suited for projects, and then maybe there's other projects that they maybe shouldn't work on. Yeah. And that's not to go against the quality of the writing, because I just think that that was the wrong kind of film for him. Yeah, and it was almost a dry run for Firefly. I think you get that thing of somebody making wanting to make a particular kind of film, and maybe it's not suited for that particular film that they're working on right now. Yeah, but there's not really much about Josh Whedon in Waterworld, really? Not really, no. I think there's a couple of lines and a couple of monologue bits at the end that I thought, oh yeah, that's cool. And mm. then maybe he had to hand in. But um, there's not much of his personality in the film. No. Well, it's all Kevin Costner. It, it is. It's, it is. It's all Kevin Costner. Okay, so as you can probably hear, Waterworld has plenty of problems in the making of the film. But were any of these problems enough to sink Waterworld? what did you think about the film just a brief overview what did you think of waterworld was it a good was it bad did you enjoy it i found it entertaining but there's not enough there that makes it distinctive enough i think when we go to our roger ebert quote at the end it kind of almost perfectly sums it up yeah it's entertaining whilst you watch it but it doesn't stay with you and the thing is with it in terms of the production it looks great for the most part i think it's really well done it's a really well made film yeah on a technical level but on a script level, it, it's just a little bit flat. 
And the main thing with me, I feel like the whole middle of the film just sags. Yeah. The whole bit on Mariner's boat is just far too long. Yeah, it, it really is. And just to give my opinion as well, I'm very much in a similar kind of camp. I quite enjoy Waterworld. But considering that there was so much work put into retooling the end of the film... It's like you say, it's actually that middle that doesn't work. It feels like it's treading water for a while. Yeah. Excuse the pun. Yeah. And it's got some really strange tonal shifts as well <laughs> that, that make me think that, Jesus, this at one point was a kid's film? Yeah. You know? <laughs> for me, it seems to be a similar situation than we were talking with, um, with Virus, actually, where the veteran actor gets what he's in. He knows exactly what he's in. Yep. So you're talking the Dennis Hopper character. He knows that this is like a campy, slightly cartoony, seafaring epic. And he really gets into the role. Whereas some of the younger actors are taking it far too seriously. Yeah. And that's where some of the darker elements come into play. But yet the two things don't really mesh together that well. No, because you get the sense that Dennis Hopper is in a film that's very fun. But when Kevin Costner's on screen and when it's anything to do with his character, it's almost a bit too po-faced. Yeah, I always feel like the stuff on the Atoll and all the stuff involving the smokers is much more successful than any of the stuff that's on Mariner's Boat, yeah. for example, which is where most of the middle of the film takes place. And the only bits where it really comes alive is when they come into contact with the smokers. No, it only ever seems to work when they're actually in danger or yeah. actions happening around them. Yeah. But whenever it's just them and the film standing on their shoulders, they can't take the weight. Yeah. So it's actually when the more cartoony elements come into play that it really it more suited. And I think that's where the film should have really concentrated its energies on. Yeah. Rather than some of these more po-faced, darker elements that mm-hmm. really weren't necessary for this kind of story. And just to talk about some of those darker elements as well, I, uh, there's one thing I want to bring up straight off the bat, but there's this weird sexual undertone in the film. There's some strange sexual stuff going on, especially when he first comes on the atoll and they offer him this virgin woman to have sex yeah. with to impregnate yeah just to you know keep the gene pool alive yeah uh, which is so strange for this type of film kids are watching this well that's <laughs> the other thing as well there's there's a lot of cultural stuff explaining the world that seems to be missing so scenes like this seem odd because yeah. prior to this scene there's no explanation that everyone's sterile or there's problems with that it mm-hmm. just seems to come out of nowhere and i imagine that in terms of the casting as well like a director that really wanted to portray that would have cast a lot more let's say interesting looking people if they wanted to get across the idea that yeah the gene pool is running dry yeah much in the same way that george miller does in mad max fury road yeah when yeah. you see everybody around morton joe's compound yeah and everybody's strange looking and odd looking and they look again interesting yeah that you've got this idea that they're starving yeah as well and everybody looks too pretty in Waterworld. oh yeah it's a very Hollywood apocalypse, isn't it? That's a problem with Kevin Costner films in general is that everyone looks too good. Yeah. And you get the same problem with The Postman and even like Dances with Wolves has that issue. Same thing with Robin Hood as well because yeah. the thing is with Robin Hood, it, it should be a lot grittier than it is and yeah. it's just not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the closest you get that Kevin Costner looks a little bit sunburnt. Yeah. And that's probably just because he actually is probably sunburnt. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the only characters that aren't prettified are the smokers, and that's why they look best. Yeah. Because they purposely made to not look pretty. They look interesting. Yeah. There's one thing that I've got to ask, though, about the smokers as characters. Because I think the script really has issues, and yeah. that's where everything really boils down to. Yeah, Regardless yeah. of what happened during production, it's the script yeah. where this film really falters. What are the smokers about? Who I are don't the, know. Who are the smokers? The main problem is there's a couple of problems with it. 
You never know what the smoker's end game is. You never know what their thing is, yeah. apart from the fact that they have cigarettes. Mm-hmm. You don't know where they get the cigarettes from. And also, you don't really understand why they want to get to dry land, yeah. their main reason. It seems to be that they want to grow a massive tobacco plantation, maybe. Mm-hmm. But even that's not very well explained. And there's no reason why they want to attack the atoll other than getting their hands on this girl, which they could have probably done in a much easier fashion with much less use of resources and loss of life. Yeah, it doesn't really justify that massive attack as much as I enjoy that action set piece. Yeah. But we are shown in the film that the smokers already have spies that have infiltrated this at all. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been better for them to just kidnap the girl at night, for instance, while everybody's sleeping, have a boat waiting outside, jumping about you got the girl. I think the main issue with this, again, is that they front-load the film because that Atoll set is so good yeah, and it probably cost so much money that they really should have saved that till the end. That should have mm-hmm. been the climax yeah. where they would have maybe had more reason to attack it in terms of the audience understanding why they wanted to attack it. Yeah. It would have made a much better climax to actually have everything on the Atoll at the end rather than have that as the opening. Yeah, and the film never reaches those heights again no. in terms of the action. It really tries with the end. but It does. It's got a fantastic explosion. Yeah. But... but um. The set itself is no atoll, so no. it doesn't quite meet those heights. No, and I guess that's why the middle of the film sags so much as well. Yeah. It's because we've already just seen how good the film can be viscerally. Yeah. And for a good chunk of the film then, we're just simply lost at sea. Yeah, and it becomes very episodic yeah. after that. And we're waiting. We're really waiting for that next big set to come along. Yeah. And for those next lot of characters for them to interact with. Yeah. It's just because that atoll section is so good. But yeah, I do agree. I think it is in the wrong place. And perhaps if the script was tilled around the idea of the Atoll being towards the end of the film, they wouldn't have had so many issues trying to figure out what to do with this Mariner character in the third act. Yeah. Because they could have him doing all these kind of acrobatics and underwater stunts and stuff like that. Yeah. In the set, like they do here. Yeah, and that they've been doing now for 20 years in the yeah. stunt show <laughs> to much success. Yeah. So it's almost like... Uh, they were on the money, but they waste it. Yeah. Really, that's kind of one of the main Achilles heels of the film, and that's all down to the writing, because they could have sold all this issue in the writing, and it's like, why would you put all that money into a set that's going to get destroyed in the first half an hour of the film? Yeah. When you got a film that's two hours, 15 minutes long, and that's your most expensive set, and it's a quarter of a mile wide and weighs a thousand tons. just doesn't make much sense to me on paper. With no. this film in general, it just hadn't been well thought out enough, really. No. Considering its gestation period, it just felt like some of the people that involved weren't maybe the right people for this film. Yeah, I think it was greenlit too soon, mm. just based on Kevin Costner's name. Yeah, he, like, I want to do this. Okay, let's do this. Exactly. $100 million, yeah. there we are. Not enough thought was put into where the actual story was going. Yeah. We say this a lot. This is yeah. one of the things that we always come back to on Best Forgotten Movies. But if they would have just nailed the script, it would have saved them so much hassle yeah. later on in production. It's one of those things where people never really learn from history. No. I think this is just a business thing where it's appeasing the stockbrokers yeah. year by year but even so you'd expect the business guys to have caught on to this fact yeah having said all that hindsight's a bitch yeah and obviously we weren't there so we can't really see exactly what went on in the yeah, film yeah absolutely right the thing is with any of these kind of films things are always far more complicated than they may seem on the surface yeah in examining a lot of these films it's always a miracle that they even got to be finished yeah because <laughs> there's so many films that shouldn't be that are out there it means there's some good films some bad films some middling films but there's so many films that shouldn't exist because mm-hmm. of these kind of issues yeah they somehow miraculously managed to get through well let's talk about then some of the good things 
things yeah. if the script was right because it's not a terrible script. No, nope. it's just tonally confused. There are some issues, some glaring issues. Yeah, but there are some things that it actually does well. Yeah, and we've already spoke about Dennis Hopper's character. Although we don't really get to know who the smokers are, he's quite entertaining. Uh, a lot of that's to do with Dennis Hopper, but it's there in the writing as well. Yeah, and there's a scene that I always really like where he's interrogating two people from the atoll that they've captured. Yeah, saying that the first one who speaks, he won't kill. <laughs> So the first guy who speaks starts talking about where they've gone and gives him all the information he knows. But he gets his henchmen to shoot him instead. Yeah. Uh, But there are scenes like that that really work in the film. Yeah. I mean, for all their lack of motivation and even the fact they aren't underwritten, all the best bits of the film are the bits with the smokers. Mm -hmm. And even just really minor characters, they're the ones that I remember. I really love the guy that is at the bottom of the tanker, the, the old guy oh, with, the gl- with the goggles. Yeah. And he literally has about four lines in the whole film, <laughs> but he makes such an impression because he's just really good at that little bit. Yeah, And uh, there should have been more of him in that film because he's great. Yeah. I love his last line though, because it's oh, like, thank God. oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> when he's about to get decimated by the yeah. soldier, because obviously he's probably been there for years and years and years and he's just waiting for death. I, I love that line as well. We're down to four feet of black stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love that they don't know what the fuck it is. Yeah, and it's also, uh, was it good morning or evening or whatever it may be or something? Because <laughs> it's obviously not seen daylight in years. But um, yeah, there's some really nice bits. I mean, the main problem with it, like you say, a lack of motivation. And the other thing that I think somebody else commented on is the fact that the main problem with Deacon is that he's he's a great character, but he's not threatening. No. There's no part of the film where you feel like this guy's a dangerous guy. There is other characters that kind of do that for him. Yeah, you've got that Nord character. The Nord character, yeah. right-hand man, is muscle. Who's mm. fantastic in the film. Yeah. He's one of yeah. my favourite characters. Yeah, he's played by the, the late Gerard Murphy. Yeah. Who I discovered died recently, oh. which is a shame. He wasn't that old either. He was only about 64. But mm. um, He's joined Bruce Willis. Yeah. In a big party in the sky. Others may know him from Doctor Who, from the classic series. I think most people will know him from... He plays uh, one of the corrupt judges in Batman Begins. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's quite a distinctive looking fellow anyway, so... Yeah. But yeah, there's those characters that are there, but in a way, the Nord character works probably a little bit better as a villain than Deacon does, because the Deacon's almost like the comic foil. Well, he's actually given more time with Mariner. Yeah. Nord feels more like Mariner's, who's Kevin Costner's character, Mm. feels more like his antagonist. Yeah. More so than Deacon does. Yeah. That's an issue I have with the film, is Deacon and Mariner get to share screen time and page time. Yeah. So very late in the script. Yeah. And ironically as well, that's also another issue that they fix with the stunt show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the stunt show's kind of corny, but it actually fixes quite a lot of the problems that are in this film. And like I said, that's why the stunt show, which can be viewed at Universal Studios Hollywood and some other places as well, but it actually works much better than the film and it's more popular than the film mm. because it gets all these other elements right in the fact that it puts the smokers front and centre. There's much more dialogue going between Mariner and the Deacon and uh, the whole show is the atoll yeah. and the climax is in the atoll. Everything's around that. So again, they, it's kind of the people even just involved in a, a stunt show at a theme park understand the material better than the filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I like, so I liked all that. I mean, uh, what else did I like? Well, we've also got to talk about the world itself. Yeah. And we do have to grant the writers that, that they did create this world. It has these very Mad Maxi elements to it, sure. But to come up with, the idea of setting it out at sea in a world that's just an endless ocean it really works and there's some elements to that like the underwater cities and stuff like that that are completely decimated 
there are elements like that that really work. They do. I think, again, it's just not developed enough because I didn't even realise until quite a way through the film that the humans didn't realise that there was land at all. Yeah. I didn't realise that they thought that the world was always like this Mm -hmm. and that they hadn't worked out that they weren't made for the sea. It kind of puzzled me that way. And I suppose the big issue that ties into that is they really don't make enough of the fact that our main character, this mariner, is this mutant this yeah. um, hybrid yeah. fish man. <laughs> yeah. They never play on that at any other point. No. We never get to see any other people that are like him or have any other kind of mutations. No. Well, it's more of an evolution. But we don't get into that world at all. No, because this is the other thing. that This film was meant to be set in like 2500. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times passed in terms of this world being like this, which is why they don't think that there has been any land at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you would expect some more mutation to or ev- evolution to have taken place for them to even try and adapt yeah. to this world. Yet Marin is the only example of this. And it's kind of puzzling why, the, yeah, why there aren't at least some sort of gradual changes from people it feels too close to how society is today yeah um definitely. especially in the clothes that they wear and stuff like that they're still wearing what's essentially the leftovers from now really yeah it's almost like they've wasted the potential there are some good things i like some of the languages that they use like everything's all a bit mixed up like the first language that mariner speaks when he's speaking to the first drifter is their uh, hindi yes and everything's got a little bit mixed up and some of the accents are a bit all over the place as well yeah i like that part of it but again, yeah, not enough is made of that fact. Yeah, everything's far too anglicised mm-hmm. for that. I mean, this is just a problem of being a mainstream film of in the course, 90s. Of course, but... It's got to appeal to so many different types of audiences yeah. that it just ends up being somewhat bland in some yeah. respects. I would have liked to have seen it develop into almost like how Gaff speaks in Blade Runner. With the uh, city speak. Yeah, yeah, how it's a kind of mix of different things. Yeah, well... I think you're dealing with different leagues of filmmakers there. Uh, yeah, you so. say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, I think this is one of those things where you're making a major studio film for a studio. Whether the thing that people forget, I mean, this is a film that's obviously drawing heavily off Mad Max 2. The thing is with Mad Max 2 that that is an independent film. Yeah. And they could do whatever they wanted on it. And I could bet money on it that if that had been made as a studio film, it would not look like that. No. So you've always got that to contend with. I mean, I'm quite amazed that Mad Max Fury Road looks the way it does, considering that is a studio film. But I think George Miller took it so far away from the studio, they couldn't keep his tabs on him in the same way. Yeah, and you've also got the fact that Mad Max 2 was already in existence, so you had that as a benchmark. And Mm -hmm. they were like, I think they were almost hands-off because they didn't want to mess with it. Yeah. Because it had taken so long to get it to the screen anyway, they didn't want anyone to touch it anymore. Because it was like, we're just going to trust you on this one. Because sort of <laughs> it's taken so long anyway. But yeah, with this film, it's very obvious that it's had a lot of people's fingerprints all over it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's things I like in isolation, but then I don't think they work in the context of the film. Like, I do like Kim Coates as the imaginatively titled Drifter 2. <laughs> uh, I don't know why he's got a, just a title called Drifter 2 because he's, he's in the film for about 10 minutes and he's yeah. not got a proper name, mm-hmm. which is weird. Um, he's got a fair few lines as yeah, well. Yeah, he's, he's probably the only other part of the second act that really elevates it a little bit. Yeah, it's weird that he's credited almost like an extra. Yeah, it's weird. But um, I do have an issue with this scene, though. Yeah. I really do, and it ties back into this well, yeah, weird tonal... sexual thing. It's, it's such a tonal shift for the film, and I always think it's quite heavy-handed in the yeah. way that 
the writers are trying to make us warm to this Mariner's character. Yeah. Because this is a, supposed to be a real turning point for this character. But they set it up so poorly that by the end of the scene, I still don't like him. Yeah. Well, um, that's the thing. I I'm like, talking about Mariner's character, yeah, Kevin Costner's character. But that's the thing. I like uh, Kim Coates' character. And I like what yeah. he's doing with it. Yeah, yeah, I do. But I don't like what he's doing. Yeah. What he's doing is wrong for that character. Yeah, he, he comes on board their ship and he tries to strike a bargain with Mariner. And the bargain is that Mariner gets supplies if Kim Coates' character is allowed to have sex with Helen. Mm. And so Mariner essentially just authorizes the, the rape of this character for his yeah. supplies. And then halfway through decides, no, I've changed my mind yeah. and kills him. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic scene where he kills him. I really like how that plays out and how yeah. it's executed. But it just makes me think like, oh, well done, guy. You're not just going to sit there and let a rape yeah. happen. That doesn't make you a good guy. You're practically the fucking champion of it moments before. Yeah. It's not so much that it's gross on purpose. It's more so it's happened by accident. It's just because it's so heavy-handed. And in this type of film, which is essentially, like we say, at one point been a kid's film and now it's supposed to be this action-adventure epic, it feels completely out of place. Yeah, and it's almost like they even try and make him a good guy before that in the fact that he doesn't let the Drifter have sex with Enola. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not enough. And, again, the main problem with this, if we go into the character of Mariner... I like that they stuck to their guns and made the character of Mariner very much an anti-hero. He's not the most likable of fellows. Yeah. But it's too heavy-handed. They play on it too much. Yeah. Kind of damages the character by the end. Yeah. Because you don't like him really anyway, even by the end, even when he starts to do good things. He's been too much of an anti-hero that he's not very appealing as a leading man. I wonder if if they would have gone down the road of just making him an unlikable guy all the way through. <laughs> but I do appreciate that he's got an arc. Yeah, and that's the thing where people talk about, oh, it's third act problems, but I think this is second act problems because yeah. a lot of this stuff with him being an unlikable character is all in the second act when they're yeah. on the boat. I don't get the sense that he's as unlikable in the first act than he yeah. is in the second act. He yeah. becomes worse in the second act than he is in the first. So I feel this is the main problem of that sequence. And again, I feel like the relationships between those characters just aren't strong enough. It's not so much the arc that's the problem because his character arc's quite good. I, yeah. I like what happens to him yeah, during yeah. the runtime of the film. It's more so how that takes place and the yeah. structure of the arc where the film falters. Mm. And perhaps that's just because it's gone through so many different writers with so many different ideas for the character, even being rewritten on set. Maybe it's no surprise that Joss Whedon probably wrote him as being the most likable version of that character. And it's probably a problem in editing as well. There's yeah. many things that have been trimmed from this film. But at the same time, I'm kind of, I don't know whether I'd actually want to watch a longer version of this film. I think it's one of those films that you could probably make it the same length. Yeah. Just take things out of it and add things. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we've talked about the characters, we've talked about the story. Now let's talk about the performances, because um, we have touched upon the fact that Waterworld is something of a Mad Max to the Road Warrior ripoff. Mm. And there's a lot of that in Kevin Costa's main character, this Mariner character. Mm. But does it pay off in the same way that Mad Max does in the Road Warrior? Because that's clearly what they're aiming for. Yeah. He's this silent, apocalyptic drifter. Yeah. Who's just trying to survive from one place to the next. And he's kind of embroiled in somebody else's adventure. He's brought into that and forced to take part in it. Yeah. Much in the same way that it is in Mad Max. Does Kevin Costner nail it or doesn't he? What do you think? I think they get close. But I think like you were saying before we started recording, I think 
the actor lacks certain things, certain yeah. qualities that elevate that character to a different plane. Yeah. Like you were saying about Mel Gibson. Yeah, I was. I was saying the thing is about Mel Gibson is he manages to be unlikable and an anti-hero and hesitant and not wanting to take part in their rescue. And yet he plays it with this Mel Gibson natural charm mm. that there's always something endearing about that character despite how intense he is. With Kevin Costner, it's just all intensity with no charm. There's also there's, there's things like that are in Mad Max 2 that just elevate the character a lot. With Mad Max 2, he loses things. Yeah. And he makes you feel it. Like he loses his dog, he loses his car. And he, the film makes you feel those losses because mm-hmm. that's all he has in the world. And he loses both things. But with Waterworld, we don't quite get that. <laughs> no. In fact, I would say that the equivalent scene to mad max losing his dog his only companion in this world yeah is the scene in which the mariner loses his boat it is destroyed yeah and what follows is and i have a clip of this that we're gonna play (laughs) this is supposed to be like the emotional pinnacle point of this character where things have got real for him yeah and he emerges from the water to see his boat a complete wreckage and this is how he delivers the line yeah, this is literally the end of Act 2, lowest yeah. point section yeah. that we get in most films. But this is how Kevin Costner chooses to play that moment. My boat. My boat. <laughs> There's so much passion and emotion in that in that statement. Well... I said before intensity, and what I actually meant was um, he plays it cold and distant. He's supposed to be completely disconnected from these characters, but he plays it way too cold and distant. There's just no emotional This is supposed to be the bit that sends him over the edge and makes him invest in the people that he's been around more. Yeah. It really should be the thing that he's been so in love with this boat that when he loses it, he becomes invested in the characters that are around him more. He kind of opens his eyes to everything else that's around him. So in a way, losing the boat is a good thing, but the film doesn't recognise this fact at all. Yeah, it's supposed to be him stopping to think about objects yeah. and starting to think about people. Yeah, it's almost like a play on materialism, really. Yeah, it? it really is. But yeah, Because that's all he's been the interested in. The film's not intelligent enough to recognise this no. fact. <laughs> it's there as well. Yeah. But the film, like you say, it just doesn't come through. It almost doesn't have the intelligence to really make that pay off. Mm. Again, it's it's another point in which it's just missed the mark. Yeah, so with, with this film, it's always like, oh, it's close, but no cigar. Yeah, it's and it's so close. Yeah, it's a real problem with all these characters. And again, I think the main thing when you're talking about performances, not that anyone's particularly bad in this film. Yeah. I just don't feel that, like, that central trio yeah. of Mariner, Helen, and Anola is strong or charismatic enough to carry a film, especially in the long section in the middle, where it's literally just them three. It's like a three-hander. Yeah. Because I like the actors in other films, actually. I feel they're really yeah. good in other films, uh, all of them. But I don't feel that there's enough chemistry or charisma to really beef up that section of the film compared to what we've seen already and what we'll see later. Yeah. yeah. I, again, I don't think it's really the actors. I mean, perhaps there are a few decisions Kevin Costner's made that perhaps went the wrong way. Yeah. And again, with the, with the whole making the character unlikable situation... I feel that there's too many set pieces that demonstrate how unlikable he is yeah. in terms of him throwing people overboard, offering them up for sex, uh, <laughs> people having <laughs> sex with them anyway. You could have taken maybe two of these things and used them, but there's about three or four that yeah. they have in the film. And it's just like they just keep piling it up. And it's like, what is this too much? 
yeah. for this section of the film and just for these characters and this tone of film. Again, it's just far too heavy-handed. Yeah, I think I think you said it right earlier about this character and even about the performance is that they spend too long in making him out to be a real mm. bad guy, really. That when it that turnaround does happen, you don't buy it. No, that's it. You you just don't buy it. Yeah, because the, the, right. the thing is with me, and this is only the third act, because you get that speech from Enola saying how the Mariner's gonna save her and kill all the bad guys. Yeah, but you don't buy her speech because he's been so awful to her all yeah. through the whole film. I like that speech and I love that sequence. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense that she says it. No, logically, it doesn't make sense at all. No, he taught her to swim. Okay, sure, yeah, that's but it. That, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't level out against I think all it's the, the bad shit. Them. I think it's the 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 scale of it, like the sca- the balance of scales between good and bad. Yeah, he's done way more bad things than good things. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's nothing in that character's mind that should make her think that. Yeah, in a real term sense. And before we move on to the filmmaking side of things, um, I do want to talk about one character that does practically operate as the film's um, Deus Ex Machina character, yeah. and that is Michael Jetta's character, whose name I forget. He's like this bumbling uh, Gregor. professor, Gregor. Old Gregor, yeah. yeah. And uh, the late Michael Jetta. Yes, doing his best Borat impression. Yeah, it is, yeah. I really love him um, as an actor. Yeah. Every time he's in a film, he always plays these weird characters and really well. Yeah. Even in Jurassic Park 3, he's one yeah. of the guys that stands up as like above the rest of the film. That's how he died. He actually yeah. got killed by a raptor. <laughs> That's all real footage. But um, he's this wacky character. But other than the fact that he has this flying machine and he literally is the hand of God, he literally takes, he saves them from the situation. He comes from the sky um, and saves them at their lowest yeah, point. He has no other contribution to make to the story. And it's so strange as well because the way that they set him up earlier on in the film, he's supposed to be Helen and Enola's way out of this world. And he dies. He's supposed to be like this sacrifice that makes everything feel real now because this character's died. The rest of it matters. They're really out of their element. They need yeah. to rely on somebody else. For him to come back later in the film, it makes no sense because that explosion, which he supposedly dies in, is gigantic. Yeah. And later on, he just appears like nothing happened. He's got a slight burn on his face. Yeah. And and that's it. And his flying machine, his balloon is completely fine. Yeah. Even as a kid, I always thought, I don't buy that. I really, <laughs> I don't buy it. That's a, that's a get yeah. out of jail free card, that is. Even the fact that there's like some of the main characters from the Atoll that have survived, I didn't even quite buy that just for how decimated the atoll was at the end of that sequence at least they set that up though where you do get to see a couple of people escape from the atoll yeah, after yeah. they occupy it after the smokers occupy it yeah but for them all to come together in this way like they've almost planned to meet up and go on somewhere else doesn't make much sense no and i think this again is just a waste of the atoll and its characters yeah you could have built up all these characters much more if the film had been more centered around the atoll and you know what the thing is as well I don't like the characters from the Atoll. No. The dicks. Yeah. They kill somebody because he's got some slight mutation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because he can breathe underwater because he's different. Yeah. But the thing is, this is a character that could help them. Yeah. Because he can fucking... It's a man that's evolved to the situation that he's in. Yeah. And the, these guys haven't. So he's he's of much more use to them as a helping hand than he is dead. Yeah. He's actually the way humanity has to evolve in order to survive this world. Yeah. I think that's just, again, I think that's just lazy writing. Yeah. This is Joss Whedon again talking about how they don't use the fact that this guy is a mutant. Yeah. Because in the script, when a character discovers it, that he's a mutant, then they just want to kill him immediately. Yeah. And there's nothing exciting about that, really. It's just stuck sort of fearful villagers vibe. Yeah. And they take it nowhere. So when 
when these characters do come back, I don't give a shit. They no. could have died. I yeah. really don't care. Um, so I, I don't know why the film does this. Yeah, because again, if if you're gonna copy Mad Max too, yeah, even in that film, they're kind of very wary of them at the start, but then there's a real camaraderie. Yeah, you really want these characters to succeed, and you feel for it when some of these characters die. Yeah, but with this film, it doesn't do any of that, and again, you just don't give a shit about these characters no. that, have, that have been saved because they, yeah, they all should have died. <laughs> uh, the only character that has any kind of dimension about him is um, what's his name, R.D. Call. Yeah, R.D. Cole, yeah. R.D. Cole, who's the enforcer. I think we spoke about him. He's like the mayor of the... Yeah. Or the sheriff yeah, yeah. of this little town. But even he, he's like, I'm sorry I have to kill you, but I have to kill you. Mm. And it's like, it's still not enough. He's supposed to be the only guy that you can warm to, but he's still going to be a dick about it. <laughs> so yeah, again, it's just poor writing, really. Mm. This is another example of one of those scripts that's been rewritten so many times, but not for reasons of getting that idea better. It's one of those things where lots of different ideas have been generated and then rejected, and then they've started again and been rejected and then started again. Actually, probably slightly more plausible situation as to why this is a water world rather than just ice caps melting. There's another version of the script where there's like two moons or there's something wrong with the moon and it's caused all the tidal patterns to go haywire, which is why everything's like been engulfed in water, which is a probably more interesting situation for them to be in. It is. The only reason they didn't go through with it is because it would have been too expensive. Yeah. Which you can see why. Yeah. I do like the idea of the Paul Icaps mountain, but scientifically it doesn't make any sense whatsoever no. because it wouldn't engulf the world. Yeah. But that's a cool little sci-fi yeah. idea and it probably makes this world feel more otherworldly. Yeah. But despite all its faults for this reason, it not really making any sense yeah. that it'd be in the Paul Icaps mountain, yeah. it still does open with possibly the best studio logo <laughs> ever. And it's the Universal logo, so you've got this vision of the Earth, obviously, yeah. with the Universal banner. That dissolves and then we kind of zoom in onto the earth yeah. as slowly the land is engulfed by the oceans mm-hmm. as the polar ice caps melt. I really love that studio logo. Yeah. Uh, it is slightly spoiled by the trailer guy. It, it is, literally yeah. is the, the guy who does the trailers mm-hmm. at that time and he's literally doing the narration for no reason because there's no other narration in the film. No. It's lazy writing because all you're doing is saying what the situation is yeah. with some disembodied voice. I'm wondering if that was part of the script or something that was brought in and yeah. post. Because it like feels some like... studio head banging a desk it saying feels they're like... not going to get what's going on. But it feels like something that they recorded for the trailer and then needed to just yeah. send a splice yeah. in which is why it sounds like trailer guy. Yeah. Oh, and one thing as well, just a very minor thing that I always think the script does wrong is that it has one of the characters as Mariner actually refer to the world as being water world. He says something like, nothing's fair in water world. Like, yeah. yeah. You make it sound like it's a fucking theme park ride. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, well um, in, in a way, actually, this is the last piece of trivia on IMDb. There is a water world water park in Newquay in Cornwall. Every time I put in water world. <laughs> it comes up with that, Yeah, it? it does. That's the first thing that comes yeah. up. Not the film. No, that, that, this that's, fucking how, water uh, park. that's how brushing the carpet this film has been <laughs> is that a little water park in yeah. Newquay is more famous on the internet than the film. <laughs> but going on to the filmmaking, the Polar Ice Caps Mountain would have been the least of this production's problems. Yeah. Because uh, everything was against them, including the weather. Yeah. They had like three hurricanes during the filming of Waterworld which damaged the sets quite significantly at times mm. and sank one of them, only a minor one. Yeah. 
I think it's the little tree one that they have where they have they hang up all the dead people. Yeah, they got them like they're real. puppets. Yeah, yeah. Which I would actually understand why that sat sunk because it didn't look very stable. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. I think this is just a um, a problem with the kind of film that they were making. There yeah. should have been more contingency for, I think. But I think if you made this film nowadays, you wouldn't have as many problems as you would do then because with films made today. Like we were saying before, where the atoll was docked, yeah. and they only had to take out to sea when they were doing some of the long shots, you probably could have made that film now with the atoll being docked all the time, yeah. because you could have just digitally extended the shots of the ocean, well, and that you, would have been fine. When they were making the film, if they were shooting one way, which was against the sea, to shoot the other, they would have to rotate the entire yeah, the reverse shots, so they could shoot the reverse shots. Whereas nowadays, you would just put a giant green screen up against one side of the atoll. Yeah. And like say, in post, you would digitally extend it, add the ocean. Mm. I mean, imagine how much time and money is wasted rotating these sets, how much manpower is needed in order to uh, execute it. And I'm not saying that's a better thing necessarily. No. But I think it's one of those things that, yeah, saves you a lot and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking anything away from that set because it is a beautifully designed set by Dennis Gassner. Yeah. Who's now known for the the Bond pictures. But uh, yeah, it's a great set. And again, it's just wasted there's yeah. so many great moving parts to the set that you just see brief glimpses of in the first 20 minutes and then it's all gone. Yeah, I really appreciate the ambition behind that set and what they were setting out to do. But like I say, I'm, I'm not saying it would have been better to put up a green screen, but I'm saying nowadays, actually, you could digitally extend the set and have nobody notice. Definitely. Not everything has to look like Peter Jackson's The Hobbit in terms of digital no, extensions no. where it's clearly obviously digital. Yeah. I think it could be executed in a way that you wouldn't notice. Yeah. I mean, we see it a lot. I mean, there's, there's, you've got things like Skyfall, then you've got Dawn of the Planet of the Apes yeah. and things like that. There's, there's definitely, when you've got enough skill behind the camera, you can definitely succeed in those areas. Mm-hmm. I just think, yeah, at this time of film history, they weren't quite there yet with it. So they had to almost rely on old school yeah methods to to get this film done and it kind of worked against them at times yeah it did and one thing that kevin reynolds actually talked about was that even as far as having like ships in the background like cruise liners Mm. he had to wait for them to go out of shop Mm. or either incur the cost of taking them out in post and that would be very expensive because cgi wasn't at that point where you could just it'll take 10 minutes to do it was at a point where it was an ordeal yeah i mean um seems to be a given even at that time we were like oh we can just take things out and yeah. digitally replace things there's a shot in terminator 2 where the bike goes off the edge and into the canal yeah they actually digitally took out the steel um, wires steel wires and um doesn't look very good you can really tell that it's there it's obvious and this is not that long after they would have done all this kind of stuff so yeah it would have been really difficult to take certain things out of this film at this point in time because they weren't there yet to do this kind of stuff. This was still very much a transitional period for mm. computer-generated images. It was yeah, it was for still, computer graphics. We were still one and a half feet into that old world and just yeah. half a step into the new world. And yeah, was, they're very much relying on old-school filmmaking techniques, which, again, I, I love a lot of things they do with this, but I think it would have made this film much more impractical to make at that time yeah i think even if it would have been made in like the late 90s that's round about the right period for this Mm. type of film it's just before cgi gets too ridiculous and everybody's adding everything cgi to it yeah like you say it still would have that foot in the old world yeah it's almost just a few years just outside of the real peak period for this film to have been made because um in a way, that's the film's virtue. I do like the economy of how they do the set pieces because, yeah, nowadays you would have um, 
and especially in the film of this ilk, if it wasn't being made by George Miller, you would yeah. end up with a lot of CG elements, especially with stuff involving the battles and the smokers and the seaplanes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. With cameras doing impossible moves, planes doing impossible moves. I even just watched a trailer this morning for London Has Fallen, and there's some stuff involving helicopters that just looks fucking stupid because of... It looks like a cartoon. You've got, you've got weightless hel- helicopters bouncing off buildings and stuff like that, and yeah. it's just like, oh, it's really shit. Like, someone actually wrote down, <laughs> incidentally... This CGI looks like it was made in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't blame him. Yeah, it does um, look really poor. But yeah, the action does look great in Waterworld. And you've got these kind of like sweeping aerial shots that capture all the action and wides. And none of it's shaky. You can follow it really easily. It's, it's where the film really excels and becomes that true high seas adventure that you really want it to be. Mm. And a lot of that really rests on the camera work. Yeah. Which is uh, Dean Semler. Yes. And again, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's also another holdover from Mad Max the Road Warrior. It's another kind of and, reference. Uh, Beyond to that. Thunderdome. Yeah, and Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. yeah. So they've clearly really gone for that look of film. Yeah. And he does bring that with him. Yeah. He, he really does. Because this is another thing when we're going into the production design of this film. So obviously on a script level, it takes a lot from Mad Max 2. But I think on a um, production design level, it takes more from Beyond Thunderdome in terms of how everything looks, especially in the Atoll. Uh, the Atel is almost like a water version of Bartertown, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all that kind of steampunk look to it. Yeah, yeah it and does. the way just the way the characters are all dressed as well, it's more Mad Max 3 with the children and stuff like that. Even in Mad Max 2, there's still um, it's still very much connected to the old world. Yeah. Whereas by Mad Max 3, it looks like much more time has passed. It feels more like a fantasy film. Yeah. It has a touch of the old world about it, but it does feel more... Like fantasy. Yes. I always get a flashback of Return of the Jedi yeah, when becomes, I watch yeah. Thunderdome. But yes, yeah, so it really takes more of that because it's probably it's a much more um, Hollywood version of Mad Max. It is, yeah. Because by that time they were making it for a studio, which is why it has certain issues. But yeah, it's a much more fantasy Lost Boys version it of is. Mad Max. And that's what Waterworld takes from those films in its production design. I mean, even there's even a bit of hook in there as well actually i wanted to mention hook actually during this filmmaking section of the podcast because i actually think waterworld technically is a better film than hook yes because it does more with the sea and i keep saying high seas adventure but that's what i'm going for and that's clearly what steven spielberg wanted Mm. in hook he tries to infuse it with that but everything feels so kind of restrained and uh, claustrophobic in hook you do really get the sense that all this is just on a set and all these places are within walking distance of each other. At least in Waterworld, you get a sense of distance. And like I say, it feels like it's um, not confined. What Waterworld does that Hook didn't is that, yeah, it takes it outside. Yeah. And that's the main thing that Spielberg regrets when doing that film and that he kept it all in sound stages, mm-hmm. which is true. Because what the Atoll does is what the port set in Hook should have done keeping it outside and it almost baffles me as well especially as spielberg used it like two years later is that to do neverland why not film it in hawaii and then yeah. add things to it it just makes sense to me that you would do that i mean there's, it seems to be that all the peter pan films that have been made in the last 20 odd years have all fallen to the same trap they've either been confined to a sound stage which they've all been confined to sound stages yeah and then the later films including this new one that's just come out there's always too much CGI and too much gloss yeah. put on it and not enough realism because I think that's the problem with, with Neverland and stuff like that. You need to make it feel real. 
And because yeah. if it's real, there's more wonderment. Whereas if it's just totally removed from reality, there's no uh, attachment to the audience. But mm-hmm. that's what Waterworld does. It creates this outlandish world, but it's got its feet firmly placed and grounded in reality that you you feel that this place is real. I think that's it. And I think that goes to show just how well executed it is viscerally. Because yeah. despite all the faults of the script and despite all these points that are making me think, oh, this world is illogical for it to exist, I really buy into it watching mm. the film because of the way that it looks and the way yeah. that it's executed. Because it does feel like a real world. It feels like all this stuff is really happening and there's very little in the way of cheating. Yeah. Which is what too many filmmakers look to do these days. Yeah. They cheat because they don't want to put in the hard work. Yeah. And Waterworld is clearly a film where Reynolds and Costner are putting in the hard work. They really are. Yeah. Again, this morning I was reading a a little article on Waterworld from Den of Geek, and they were talking about, okay, Waterworld cost a lot of money to make at the time, but it's not one of those films where it costs a lot of money and you don't see the money on the screen. You certainly see all the money on the screen. You see every penny. Yeah, it's all there. They probably spent more than they needed to, yeah absolutely but every single penny is there on the screen i easily buy that this was the most expensive film of its day which it was yeah i buy that because look at it it looks great the sets are fantastic Mm. the action is epic again it all just kind of falters just on the script yeah it falters on the script because the script doesn't utilize these elements well enough no and that's where it really falls down but yeah i feel it's 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 a really well-made film i mean Effects-wise, the only thing it really falls down on is the later parts where um, they're in the flying machine, and it's really obvious that it's a, a slightly... I'm not sure whether it is a, an early digital composite or an optical one, I but it looks... I think it's an optical It looks composite. like a really bad optical composite. It does. Between the, the guys in the flying machine and the sky behind them. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a... I think there's a problem with the lighting as well. Mm-hmm. None of it matches up correctly. Yeah. And that's the only bit where it really doesn't work, but everything else is really good. Yeah, it is. Okay, so going back to Kevin Reynolds as a director, I actually like a lot of what he does with the action in this film and a lot of what he does with the world. But when it came to the editing, he was unfortunately locked out of the editing room. He had nothing to do with the editing. He had nothing to do with this film pretty much from the third act onwards. Yeah. And this isn't really his film in a way. It's Costner's. Yeah. But there is a version of the film out there. There's a TV edit that incorporates more of what Kevin Reynolds wanted in the film, uh, more of what he shot for the film. Yeah. And one of the things is an alternative ending. And it's not really a big alternative ending that changes the way the film plays out or anything Mm. like that. But it's actually the scene in which Kevin Reynolds said that it's the scene that made him sign on to the film. Yeah. It was supposed to be his Planet of the Apes moment. And it's when you find out that the dry land that they've discovered is actually Everest. They yeah. find a plaque on the floor that says uh, George Mallory summited Everest here or something like that. Yeah, I think it's Edmund Hillary. Oh, Edmund Hillary. Ed- Edmund Hillary, yeah. yeah sorry. And this is where they first reach the summit of Everest. Yeah. But there's many problems with this. Uh, and it is tied into the film. I mean, the, the whole map on the back of Enola, uh, the longitude and latitude coordinates are the actual coordinates of where Everest is. Yeah. But this section would probably have more problems than it would have solutions because of where they actually chose to shoot it. <laughs> yeah. It's not Everest. <laughs> There's no way even 500 years in the future that would be Everest. No, number one, they're not even on the highest point. They're just on the coast. And it's not a summit. <laughs> no, it's, n- it's nowhere near the summit of yeah. Everest. Unless some great earthquakes have taken yeah, place. Some geographical point, yeah. Yeah. 
And also, it doesn't make sense anyway because there's other geographical problems because Everest is in the Himalayas. Yeah. And um, where else this film is meant to take place seems to be over North America uh, because when they go down into the underwater city, it's actually modelled on Denver. Yeah. So I don't buy that they've travelled that far to get to dry land. On one bottle of water. Yeah. <laughs> what looks like. And a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They've essentially travelled halfway around the world. Yes. And also, this whole idea that Reynolds wanted it to be his Planet of the Apes moment, where you find out that it was Earth all along. It doesn't make sense in this film for it to have that kind of moment, because we know it's Earth the no, whole time. No, it's just like we, a... It would be easy for any of us to deduce that it's probably somewhere like that. Yeah. It's, oh, it's got to be the highest point on Earth. And we already have that moment anyway, because exactly. that's, that's the underwater sequence. That's the Denver moment. Yeah. So it doesn't actually matter that it's Everest. It doesn't matter to the story whatsoever. No. But there is one thing that is cut out with this ending that I think the film suffers because of. Mm. But the idea is throughout the film, he doesn't have a name. No. But on Reynolds' original version, and it can be watched on YouTube, Helen gives him a name Mm. to make him more human. And he gives him the name Ulysses because it's based on some legend that they know, which is a legend that we have now. Yeah. I like that. I like that it ends with him reclaiming that little bit of humanity Mm. and going back out to sea. He's a different person. Yeah. He's earned a chance to be called a human. It's perhaps a touch too heavy in what they're trying to portray and what what they're trying to say about this character, but I I like that. It at least gives them something other than Mariner to call him in this podcast, really. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's literally the man with no name, isn't he? Yeah. That's the... That's what they're playing on, but yeah, and like we said before, there's there's just issues with him. The whole part of that film is just too too serious and too heavy handed to mix with everything else that's going on around him. I mean, I do have issues with the end of the film anyway, just in terms of this whole Anola character. I don't get it. No. I don't get how she came to not be there and how she came to be so far away and why her parents did that. They come across the skeletons in a bed. And one of the characters said, oh, they must have known they were dying. And that's why they gave Enola away. Who the fuck did they give her to? And why did they take her off dry land? Yeah. Why did she end up halfway across the world? And if dry land's such a coveted place to be, why aren't there more people on there? And why did she get taken away? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense because, like, you would expect them to be some sort of civilization on dry land. Like, some people would have found it. Yeah. If this film had been made nowadays, it totally would have been there because that's your springboard for a sequel. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, and again, yeah, this is the major narrative problem because, yeah, there was no reason for it to have that map on her back. It's she like was just the, a MacGuffin. The, the map on her back is the way back to yeah. this island. Why would they make her leave in the first place? Yeah. Why wouldn't they just go out into the ocean, find somebody who could raise her kid, like Helen, and then bring them back? In actuality, it would have made more sense for Helen to have had the map on her back because she wouldn't have been old enough to forget. Yeah, no, she wouldn't sort have been. Of thing. So I feel like. And this is the whole problem of that Hollywood thing of having a kid in a film. Um, we had the same problem with Terminator Salvation as well, uh, where the kid adds nothing. I think she only adds anything once Josh Whedon starts writing for yeah, her. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But yeah, it would have made more sense for Helen to be that character. Yeah, Actually, it would have probably been more interesting to have had the kid as a red herring. And in fact, the Helen character is the one that's more important. Yeah. She's the one that's had this history and she's forgotten about it because she's got to that age where she just didn't remember how yeah, that happened. Yeah, that would make would more a lot more sense. But I get it's that Hollywood way you've got to have a kid in there to yeah. kind of sell it for the sell kids. It for kids. Yeah. And talking about Hollywood ways this film adopts, um, another one is that the music 
was yes. actually originally supposed to be more ethnic. Yes. And Mark Isham started writing demo pieces for the film when he was fired from the production by Kevin Costner. Because, like say, his music was too ethnic and too dark. I have not heard of any, any of the music, but no. I could get the argument that it maybe would have been too dark for this film. Mm-hmm. Because it is meant to be more sort of jaunty high seas adventure. Yeah. But yeah... <laughs> rejecting it because it's too ethnic is just uh i think that's one of those things where it's um this whole film's and we've not really talked about it actually this whole film's a bit of a whitewash it is it as really well, is where are all the ethnic people mm-hmm. in this film is like you get a couple of people but they're all peripheral white. though <laughs> yeah, they're everyone's all... white <laughs> again any ethnic diversity is all peripheral and by the end of it it's they're pretty much all white that make it to dryland yeah they're gonna settle this little white settlement yeah <laughs> it's hitler's dream yeah <laughs> But uh, yeah, talking about the music, it is very Hollywood, but I really like James Newton Howard's score for this. Yeah, it gets, it gets yeah. the blood pumping. Probably could have been better if they'd just chosen him to start with, because I'd imagine this would be one of those scores that was written very, very quickly. Yeah. And again, that's a testament to the skill of these composers that they can turn things around really quickly. It's a very Hollywood thing as well that they would hire someone who's not experienced in doing this kind of score. Yeah, the scale as well. And then reject him, but then not give him another chance to do it again. Mm-hmm. They should have just gone with somebody who was experienced in the first place. I, because I feel like with these kind of films, you need somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's very rarely that you get composers that have not been experienced in doing this thing and succeeding. I mean, even some of the scores that are technically done by people who haven't done this thing before. For example, like the Tron Legacy Daft Punk score, even that has a lot of um, co-writers involved that aren't credited. Yeah, you're right. It's like Daft Punk were brought on board to Tron Legacy and they were surrounded by all the right people to make sure that a, the right score was delivered. Mm. And it doesn't sound like Mark Isham was surrounded by the right people that yeah, he needed Yeah, it's almost like score. they just let him off on his own but then yeah. weren't monitoring him and then by the time that he'd done some stuff, it was too late. Yeah. Which is not the right thing to go about it, really. When it comes to these type of filmmakers that have been fired for going down a particular avenue... They must ask the question afterwards, well, why didn't you ask me to do that? Yeah, I mean... Um, <laughs> why, why didn't we do that together? This is like a personal thing, because I'm a, actually a film composer. Uh, anyway, but the main problem, and I find this time and time again, this is just bad directing. Yeah. This is bad directing, because when you get a director that doesn't connect with his team around him, especially in terms of like when you get a lot on the music side, when the um, the director can't quite interpret what he wants from the music when you're writing something and then it's not what that director wants and it's like they want this it's like you just go why didn't you tell me that before i started i've done all this work and you've let me do my own thing because that's what you said you wanted me to do technically it's not the composer's fault it's actually the director's fault because at the end of the day it's his vision that's uh, propelling this thing forward and if he's not communicating correctly to the people around him then it's going to go wrong and you're going to waste time and you're going to waste money and people Mm -hmm. are going to get hurt and this whole musical chairs thing going on with the director's chair, I imagine he's just been kind of fucked about too much on yeah. this film. And that's that's me just kind of extrapolating from the information that I have. I don't know for sure, but that yeah. seems like that's what's happened. And that's the thing. I think this is just Costner still riding on that crest of the wave from doing Dances with Wolves because that film was so critically lauded yeah. that anything that he was doing at the time would just turn to gold. Yeah. In a way, I'm, I'm surprised that he didn't direct the film himself anyway. Yeah. He has had experience with this type of film before, yeah. of, of this scale. Yeah, you're right. It does leave you wondering, why didn't he just direct it in the first place if this was such a personal project for him as well? Yeah, and I think it's that thing where 
the lines in the sand in terms of what the relationships were weren't figured out before they started in terms of who was doing what. No. Because from all intents and purposes, it almost felt like this is almost like an unofficial co-director job. It is. But more in the fact that Kevin Costner was undermining Kevin Reynolds' authority on set. Because it's fine when you're in pre-production and even in post-production, but when you're actually on set... It seemed like very unprofessional in terms of what they were actually, how they're actually making this film. I mean, even in terms of the living situations when they were making the film as well, there was an issue that was raised by the crew, and that was that Kevin Costner was living in a hotel at the time. That was how much was it per night? Four and a half thousand dollars a night, and he was being waited on hand and foot at this four and a half thousand dollars a night hotel, Mm. while some of his crew we're staying in really not suitable accommodation yeah so it created this issue with morale on set yeah morale was really bad on set and then also like if you're staying in somewhere like that you're really not helping the budget no it always baffles me when i hear stories about this because it's like why would you do that yeah why would you put a film like this which is your own project in so much jeopardy because of your fucking hotel habits of course it's gonna create bad morale on set because it's creating a massive class division between everyone else that's helping you make this film and yourself yeah you're really putting a spear through the heart of the idea that filmmaking is like a family business yeah where you make your families making films this feels like an old-fashioned hollywood film where your author is your star mm-hmm. and he directs everything like again we you can really compare kevin Costner to warren Beatty because he fell into the same traps and killed his career in the same ways yeah and it's like kevin Costner didn't learn from warren Beatty. Mm-hmm. i don't think we've really had anyone since kevin Costner really be like this because this is almost like a situation you get in indian films mm. <laughs> it's like a bollywood style production really probably of- um will smith I yeah, can think of John yeah. making a Men in Black 3 when they had to shut down an entire street to accommodate his giant trailer. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> yeah that, that's another film that had the third act redone yeah. six months after or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah another- it was. Yeah. Oh, God. One thing I've got to say about Kevin Costner with the making of this film is that it was made with 22 million of his own money. Yeah. So yeah. perhaps the argument could be made that he can spend his money how he wants, but. Yeah, you are going to create issues. To be honest, he's probably putting back 22 million of money that he wasted. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) he probably could have not spent that money and just lived a little bit more frugally. Mm -hmm. And going back to when we started, I think they really should have hired Robert Zemeckis because I I think if you had Robert Zemeckis on board, I don't think you'd have half the problems that are involved in this film in terms of it on a technical level. I mean, that's the thing. I I do agree. I think if you hire Robert Zemeckis, you're not going to have the same issues that you have that happened here yeah the film's not going to go ridiculously over budget yeah and you're going to end up with a technically sound film although what's world is quite technically sound at times the thing is i like a lot of what kevin reynolds does Mm. i'm almost sorry we didn't get to see his vision through until the end but i guess it's because kevin reynolds didn't have the power to really retain his vision yeah and so yeah it does need somebody like a real strong figurehead like robert zemeckis to see it through yeah and i think that's why it's also tonally inconsistent as well because there's no firm hand on the tiller as such no uh, to use a boating pun Uh, (laughs) but yeah i think that's I, i get this a lot with films that are not edited by the director or you know where the director's not been involved in the editing process that tonally they can be all over the place yeah and also pacing wise as well because the pacing on this film is all over the place as well it is yeah so yeah in terms of uh, the theatrical edit it is um probably not as good as it should have been and i have to agree so okay i think we're already drawing some conclusions as to whether Waterworld sinks or swims But how did it fare with critics and at the box office? It's not a secret that this film was initially hailed as Hollywood's biggest bomb. But do the numbers reflect that? 
So the box office figures. So the budget for this film was 175 million, which is still quite an expensive sum it even is. today. I even, mean, there's yeah. even some big films now are being made for 180 million, 200 million. I know Star Wars is being made for 200 million. Yeah. So this back in 20 years ago, it's quite astronomical. You're talking. Well, we're talking about you know Spectre levels, really, like yeah. 250 to 300 million. That, that's how yeah. much this film costs. Again, it's kind of in line with, for instance, one of the most expensive films today is The Last Pirates of the Caribbean film yeah. on Stranger Tides, which is yeah. another film at sea. It doesn't have the problems in terms of the production. That was a much more smooth sailing production. Yeah. But with all the issues that Waterworld have, I can still see why it costs that amount of money. Yeah. But that's a film that I don't know what they spent the money on. No, I really don't know where it went. Because <laughs> it's a much more restrained uh, production than the, the previous film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe they had to close down Hawaii to accommodate Johnny Depp's trailer. <laughs> to probably accommodate his ego, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, and all his makeup, his makeup trailers. <laughs> but yeah, this is made for $175 million. It should have cost 100 so that's how much over budget they went. Yeah. So almost twice as much its budget. In terms of its gross, domestic-wise, it made $88,246,000. Foreign, it actually made its budget. It made $175,972. So as a worldwide gross, it made $264 million. That's probably just about making it break even probably not quite because you're probably you know you're adding all the marketing you and distribution costs cost, and then it. you add the fact that thirties take a chunk of it as well it's probably not what they were hoping for no but at the same time for that day and age for 1995 that's a great sum for a film to make ordinarily yeah that would be a modest hit yeah and it was still number one in its opening weekend and we just made over 21 million and it was up against quite a few interesting films this week actually when it came out so you've got yeah waterworld at number one the Net at number two. I've Sandra Bullock. All oh, right. Okay. Her identity is stolen yeah. in a one of those pre-internet internet movies. Yeah. But then you've got Apollo 13 at number three. Clueless at number four. Okay. Nine Months at number five. Is that a Hugh Grant, Julianne Moore? Yeah. 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 Uh, Operation Dumbo Drop at number six. <laughs> uh, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory at number seven. The best Under Siege. Yeah. Free Willy 2, The Adventure Home at number eight. The worst Free Willy. <laughs> Pocahontas at number nine and uh, Species at number ten. Ooh. So that's a real uh, not no, that many forgotten no. films in that week. We, we, I didn't know that Free Willy two actually made it onto the cinema. I oh it yeah, there's only three DVD. Yeah, there's only Free Willy three that was a directed. Oh uh, di- right, well, director video. At the why time. why are they called Free Willy still? Isn't he already free? Shouldn't it just be called Willy? <laughs> yeah, it should do, but for <laughs> reasons of marketing, it's still called Free Willy two. <laughs> but yeah, it didn't make. A lot of money. It probably still would have lost a bit of money on its theatrical run, but when it was released on home video, yeah, that's when it really pushed it over that line because I, I remember I had the video for it. Yeah, uh, I never watched it, but I had the video for it. It became a uh, reasonable hit on home video because I think we and we see it time and time again with these movies that either movies that are perceived as being bombs or had problems or maybe not or nobody went out to see it at the cinema they always make quite a lot of money on home video because you get that thing where people go ah oh, pick it up on dvd yeah and the 90s were when the home video market was at its peak as well yeah so you could really match the type of money that you're making at the cinema Mm. easily on home video as well because you've got more time to make it as well yeah it's more of the famously forgotten film that we've covered but it does seem to be one of those ones that has grown some kind of following on home video as well yeah definitely it's probably a little bit of a stretch that we are doing this film on best forgotten movies because it really is a very famously forgotten film but i think the thing we're really um 
talking about today is the fact that it's not actually a bomb. No. Uh, it's not actually the failure that people made it out to be. Uh, there's been a lot of revisionist history going on here in terms yeah. of how it actually did and how it was even received at the time because even when at the time when I was little, it didn't dawn on me that this was a bad film or a failure or anything because yeah. anyone I talked about it with really enjoyed it. Yeah, so and I did as well. I, like I say, I had it on tape. I very much mm-hmm. enjoyed this film. Yeah. But what did the critics say? Because as we know, they seem to have their knives sharpened for this film mm. when it first came out. The production of the film was very much publicised. They were calling it Fishtar yeah. and uh, Kevin's Gate, as yeah. you said. So, what is the Rotten Tomatoes score? Well, it's 42% overall, with an average rating of 5.2 out of 10. And I think that's a little low, to be honest, mm-hmm. for the film. is. I think that the film's got issues, and we've spoke about them extensively, especially with the script. But for the type of adventure film it is, I would see this more around... 50 to 60 yeah really. i'd say about you know 60 percent just about fresh yeah i would as well yeah like six out of ten yeah and that's the thing i think with this with the critical review i mean it's obviously not what they were hoping for but it's not really bad no i mean there's other films. i mean when you were just talking about stranger tides that's a film that has a 35 or a 36 percent rating on rotten tomatoes and it still made a lot of money it's one of the <laughs> biggest films of all yeah. time as well and, and so it's like it's not even like um highlander 2 like we we're talking about the other week it wasn't critically lambasted it wasn't it's not like a 20 percent or 15 percent rating it's not it's more awful. around average Middling, kind yeah. of yeah it's what you would call mixed. Yeah. Maybe mixed negative, but it's yeah. certainly not the kind of mauling that you would expect the film to get, considering the reputation it has. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I do think a lot of people did have their knives sharpened for, oh, yeah. for the film, though. I, yeah. I really do think that often the media builds up these figures like Kevin Costner and really take pride in cutting them down a mm. peg or two. And I think this was a film where he was his peg was cut. This is something that you get all the time. I mean, we've just seen it with Spectre. Yeah, we get a successful film like Skyfall coming out, and then the next one they almost have the knife sharpened for it because they don't like people being successful. Yeah, not that Spectre doesn't have its problems because it definitely does, but I feel like especially the American critics this time around have really mauled it for not that good a reason. Like it's definitely got issues, but they've really taken issue with those problems. Yeah, and mauled it for that. A few of the criticisms really nailed the hammer on the head, but a few of them really yeah. hammer that nail. It seems to happen a lot. Uh, yeah. sometimes with films like this where it's got problems but they nail them into the ground because yeah. they, they just want to kick this thing when it's down. I actually think Spectre is probably a good um, comparison to Waterworld considering that there are both films that have real issues on script levels that are glaring in retrospect mm. but actually are still really quite enjoyable and yeah, quite and they're fun well made and well. well made yeah. Yeah, when you're actually in the film watching it yeah. once you're out of it you see the errors as clear as day mm. and I think again you're right they followed very successful films previously and they were both very expensive uh, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so I do think there are actually a lot of parallels yeah. here and quality wise yeah it's kind of there there's, there's some issues yeah but yeah I do think again it's the same kind of thing yeah and it's that whole thing you just build them up to break them down yeah well, Roger Ebert wasn't one of the people that broke this film down. He still gave it a rather positive score of 2.5 out of 4. Mm-hmm. He said, The cost controversy aside, Waterworld is a decent futuristic action picture with some great sets, some intriguing ideas, and a few images that will stay with me. It could have been more, it could have been better, and it could have made me care about the characters. It's one of those marginal pictures you're not unhappy to have seen, but can't quite recommend. I agree with a lot yeah, of what think, he's saying. I think he nails it on the head Yeah, there, I really, really do. I, I think it's a fantastic review, actually. I disagree with Roger Ebert quite a lot, but I, I keep saying it. I like to read him. Yeah. This is a review. I really agree with what he's saying. Although, I think we're going to get to the whole recommendation bit later, and let's see what we have mm. to say. 
But um, yeah, I do think it's a fair assessment. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've already established that Waterworld isn't really the flop, both critically or uh, financially, as many thought it was. It's certainly got issues, but it's certainly not as drastic as history has made out. Definitely. But now it's time for me to ask the questions. The two remaining questions I ask at the end of every episode. First off, are you any closer to understanding why Waterworld has been forgotten? I mean, can we really say it has been forgotten? Well, I'd say it's not completely forgotten, but I think certain parts of it have been forgotten in terms of its production history and it's only things that are known by geeks like you and me yeah. that really uh, understand why it is and why it's been uh, perceived as being such. But... Yeah, I think it was just set up for failure before it even came out, really. Yeah. This one's kind of an easier one to understand why it's got the reputation that it has. Not that it's all deserved either, really. I don't think it is. But, um, yeah, I don't think the film has been forgotten. In fact, I think it's actually grown in popularity somewhat over the years, as pretty much everybody owns a copy of the film somewhere. Yeah, I, I do. I just think it's that kind of revisionist history that we really wanted to take on here and say that this is where the film has been forgotten. It's in the history surrounding it. Yeah. And finally, is Waterworld one of the best of the forgotten movies or should it simply remain best forgotten? Now, this is where I'm a little bit on the fence because I really enjoyed it at the time and I think the sets are great and everything like that, but it doesn't really make enough impression on me to to say that it is the best of the forgotten because when this film came out, yeah, it's probably the best Mad Max-ish adventure that was out since Mad Max at the time. Yeah. But now that we've got, like, Fury Road, I'm not sure whether it's as valid as it once was. So I'm really on the fence with this one. I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm glad I saw it, but it's not left any lasting impression on me. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Well, <laughs> I'm really not sure. I mean, it's hard to get away from the fact that there is a lot here that rips off Mad Max. We've spoke about that in the podcast. Although I would say there are a couple of things, especially in imagery, that has gone on to influence Mad Max as well. Oh, like, yeah. There are a couple of elements to the Deacon character that seem to um, have been like played with... Um, Immortan Joe. Immortan yeah. Joe. He's got the same kind of like military tags on him as yeah. well. He seems to be a militaristic figure. Mm. Also in some of just the shots. Yeah, well, he's throwing down the cigarettes to his people. It's almost the same shot as when he's releasing the water to the people in the, in yeah. the new film. So, yeah, there are certain things where, yeah, the homage uh, has actually influenced the, the sequel of the original. Yeah. But every action film of the 90s was influenced in some way by The Road Warrior. It was a real profoundly influential film. Yes. And Waterworld definitely drives too close to rip off. And I think that's the only thing that's really holding me back is, does it bring enough new to the table? And you know what the thing that's making me say, okay, yeah, is that world. It, yeah. it, it, taking it out to sea and taking it out to that world and the ambitions of the filmmakers and for what they're trying to do. Mm. Um, I don't think it all pays off because of the lazy script writing. Yeah, because it, it's like it's a great world, but does it do enough with that world? Yeah, yeah. For a film called Waterworld. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, I'm almost there with the film. I'm almost there, but I can't. I don't know if I can quite bring myself around to saying it's best of the forgotten. But I think action-wise, it's a lot of fun. And I do think the adventure elements of the film are great and solid. There's some fantastic performances from the likes of Dennis Hopper. Mm -hmm. But again, it's just another film that's been made without the script being solid and already in place. It's a film that they thought that they could just fix along the way. And that really cripples the film for me. I would definitely recommend it and say, watch it. Have a lot of fun with this film. 
but it will leave no impression on you whatsoever. No. So it's uh, very disposable in that sense. It's a borderline film. I'm still like debating right now whether or not it should be best of the forgotten. You know what? I'm in a good mood today. I'm in yeah. a good mood. I'm going to say there's enough fun. There's enough action. There's some tonal issues. There's script issues. But there's enough going on that, yeah, give it a go because you're going to have fun. It's not going to stick with you. But yeah, you're going to have fun with it. So yeah, I'm going to say best of the forgotten because we've seen films that are real stinkers. Yeah. This isn't a stinker. No, it's not. No. I mean, if you're going to watch it, then just watch the first half an hour because that set is amazing. And then if you get bored afterwards, then just switch it off because the... Skip to the end. Yeah, skip, skip to the skip end. Skip to the last act. Yeah, the last act the, is good yeah, as well. Yeah. But yeah, the middle bit is... Nah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or at least um, get a bit of Kim Coates because I do love Kim Coates. So he does that kind of... Um, it's almost like Robin Williams doing the impression of the leprechaun <laughs> in Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yeah, Look at my gourd, mate! <laughs> that kind of thing. It's, it's really weird. It's like a Robin Williams impression of doing a Northern Irish accent. Yeah. He's a real <laughs> unsung actor, isn't yeah, he, Kim, Kim Coates? Coates. He's, he's fantastic in most things, but he just doesn't get the kind of respect he deserves. Yeah, he's in, well, he's in some TV at the moment. Was he he was in? in Sons of Anarchy for That's a while. That's it. He's, yeah. yeah, he's in it quite... He's the main character in something, though, isn't he? It could be in Sons of Anarchy. Might be some, not, yeah, I've, might I've be Sons of Anarchy. I think he's one of the main characters in yeah. it. So I think he is getting his due now. But yeah, he's for a long time. Yeah, just well, that TV guy. Well, TV is the new cinema. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. So yeah, we're saying... Are you saying Best of the Forgotten? Best Forgotten, just. Yeah, yeah, Best... Because we're in a good mood Best today. of the Forgotten. Best of the Forgotten. Just. And it is entertaining. So. It is. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, and that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. For next week's episode, we'll be going from too much water to too little, as we're watching Rachel Talalay's Tank Girl. But until then, it's cheerio from myself and ta-ta from Andy. <laughs> See you next time.